Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast explores creativity at the center and fringe of art scenes around the world. You can listen anytime, anywhere to our stories of contemporary art and culture. Sound is often elemental to new media art. Incorporated into video, sculpture, drawings, installations, and musical scores. Today, we introduce you to artists whose primary medium is sound. The diverse techniques and concepts they explore demonstrate the versatility and power of sonic art, working with music and song, noise and movement, in natural and urban settings, they're among thousands of artists drawn to this highly diverse art form. American sound artist Stephen Vitiello is based in New York City. In 2013, we talk about his work and the first group show dedicated entirely to sound art at the Museum of Modern Art, New York. We consider the history of sound art and what draws Vitiello to work with the sounds that surround him. Stephen is an electronic musician and sound artist who transforms atmospheric noises into soundscapes. One of his installations is now featured in Soundings, a contemporary score at New York's Museum of Modern Art. Curated by Barbara London, this is MoMA's first ever exhibition dedicated exclusively to sound art. A lot of museums have been exhibiting sound art, and why is it suddenly in the news because it's a museum of modern art that puts a much larger stamp of validation on it. It also puts it under a microscope. So even the little bits of press that I was looking at today are already questioning, well, is it really all that good, you know, and, um, or is it going to succeed or fail or, well, you know, and, and it's kind of what happens with major surveys, you know, even like the Whitney Biennial, people are usually ready to knock it down before they even take it all in. But I think, you know, the survey shows, I mean, ideally sound art will infiltrate the art world and just the way that you have a, a, a large group exhibition and there might be a video work or there might be two video works. My wish is that in the future there will be a sound work rather than sound art often getting bunched into these shows where it's all work about the, you know, that has the common technology of sound, but is not necessarily thematically connected. Now installed in MoMA's sculpture garden, A Bell for Every Minute was originally commissioned in 2010 for a year-long installation on the High Line in New York. 
I loved how you described it as a cultural soundscape when it all comes together. Tell me about that. It's a piece that was on the High Line from, for, one, I think, one day less than a year, from 2010 to 2011, and it was made for the High Line. You know, to describe the piece quickly, what I did was recorded bells, all over, every bell I could think of, and people at Creative Time helped me think of other bells, and then I chose 59 of them, and at the beginning of the hour, all the bells ring together so that Boots the Cat's bell rings at the same time as the synagogue, at the same time as the Hare Krishna temple bell, as you know, um, the, the New York Stock Exchange, they're all ringing together on one even plane. And then after that, one bell rings each minute individually. And there's a, a aluminum five-foot by four-foot sound map that's engraved that traces what you hear on each minute, and also you can kind of follow to where I recorded it. So your installation at MoMA will be mm-hmm. outdoors, I understood. It is, yeah. The rest of the exhibition is on the third floor. You know, it's not a piece that belongs in a black box. And I make other pieces that, you know, where I want to kind of put you in that kind of immersive space. But this piece of Bell for Every Minute, it really should it kind of be in harmony in concert with the city. So I asked for the sculpture garden. So there's five speakers out in the sculpture garden and the sound map. For the High Line, Stephen created a public art experience with sounds ranging from a tinkling cat's collar to the clang of the New York Stock Exchange. There's the people who go and they know what they're going for. And then there's other people who just sort of stumble upon it and may be surprised about kind of reorienting their senses so that they're listening rather than looking and sometimes find that they can listen for a much longer time than they might have looked if they were just going to stand in front of a a single work of art. I can see that would be the case for the Highline installation. It's interesting, you know, sometimes I get feedback like, Somebody emailed me who I didn't know who said that they jogged there every day. And it took them a few days to notice even that they noticed these bells. And then they stopped and they read the sign and they started to look forward to, as I run by there, you know, each day, what am I going to hear tomorrow? Then uh, somebody sent me a, a novel, um, like a Wall Street thriller in which the, the character goes. Uh, and he says, and then he went up onto the High Line to listen to his favorite work of art, A Bell for Every Minute. <laughs> One of the beauties of going into larger public spaces is that you do open yourself up to a wider audience and sometimes an audience that you can catch by surprise. Um, I got a larger audience for that piece and probably anything I've ever done. And the appreciation is something that surprised me because it came from children. It came from joggers. It came from art people. It came from grandmas and, and it seemed that the bells could speak to them. It didn't have to be my language. It didn't have to be an art language or a, an academic or a conceptual thing, they could interpret it in any number of ways, and it was meaningful, which is great. What you just heard was Stephen's 1999 recording of Winds after Hurricane Floyd. That year, he was artist-in-residence, 
on the 91st floor of the World Trade Center. That's the piece that ended up being, I guess, representing that that whole residency was, it's called World Trade Center Recordings, Winds After Hurricane Floyd. Uh, and it was, was right, it was second strongest hurricane to hit New York in the decade. We couldn't go in the building during the hurricane, but the morning after it peaked, I went in and there was a term that I was told was called weeping in architecture, but the building was still so wet and the winds were still strong enough that it really felt very, you felt the physicality of movement and you also heard it. And in that work, the recording of mine, it, it's often said that the building sounds like an old you know, ship kind of creaking and cracking in the wind. That's a haunting thought, really. It is. And it's, you know, it, it wasn't until I could hear up there that I became a little afraid of heights. It, everything felt very artificial until I got those microphones working. And then once you got the microphones working, you realized you were on the 91st floor and you were way up above, you know, in some cases above the clouds, up above planes and helicopters, definitely above people. And there was a real vulnerability and fragility of being there. I mean, that, I'm not saying that in any way had anything to do with predicting the, the terrible things that came, but it just, just the physicality of being becomes much more, I think, sensitized when you can hear. You became aware that the building was actually a fragile being. In a exactly, way. exactly. And I was often there, you know, at night. It was I don't know how many thousands of people occupy the World Trade Center. So it's not to say that I was alone, but in many ways I did feel alone because I was in isolated in my studio. Most of the building's lights were off, and that fragility was kind of amplified by that feeling of just being in this weird little black box studio, looking out over the city. During his 2013 residency at Robert Rauschenberg's island home on Captiva in Florida, Stephen made a profound discovery. Rauschenberg had recorded sound too, with cassette recorders and an underwater microphone. I used my own audio recorders and microphones, but I sort of touched his things and just loved being able to open up a closet and go, wow, there's Robert Rauschenberg's cassette recorders. And I'd open up another drawer and there were these underwater speakers that were not fully functional, but even dreamed of using my underwater microphone and his, auto, and his underwater speaker. And now you have maybe an awareness of what your own artifacts are going to be. I think that's true. And you know, one of my many backgrounds was working as an archivist. And, and while I was in New York, I worked for Electronic Arts Intermix, which is a video art distributor. I worked for The Kitchen as an archivist. I worked for Namjoon Paik over 12 years in all sorts of capacities. And I'm not ever going to claim to put myself on that plane of, of some of the artists I've worked with, but I do, I do try to value the work that I do and keeping track of it, keeping good records, keeping formats, um, migrated, you know, I mean, even going back to that World Trade Center piece, the Whitney bought it in 2002. And I came in and I handed them a DVD disc and they said, oh, this was 2002, but they said, 
we don't accept digital digital media for acquisitions and it's a, it is a digital work and we had to then negotiate well what are you going to get and the format I was giving them DVD audio is actually now a, an obsolete format so I also gave them data backup of the files uh, that make up the six channels of that work and it it made me think for future acquisitions as other people bought pieces or I wish other people would buy pieces you know who who's going to take care of them what are they allowed to do what kind of backup files uh, or even equipment should go with the piece you said that you are emotionally attached to sound what do you mean by that you know in film for example a lot of the emotional content is often created with sound. You could take a scene and make it happy, scary, sexy, sad by changing the soundtrack. And I found that it's the connection I have to the world is a lot of feeling that I feel comes through listening. Um, the physical impact of sound is very emotional to me. I found that in installations that I can really play with the kind of the psyche of the visitor at least play to it by the manipulation of sound in space and that if it's done right you you'll end up feeling first and and thinking second i think that with visual art you often look you kind of intellectually process and then you might be moved or not with sound i think it's the opposite you sort of that feeling hits you physically, the vibrations of sound into your body, and then maybe you process what you're thinking. Um, but it's just, I don't, I don't have a super visual eye the way so many of my friends do. I don't always notice colors or design problems, but I do listen first and look second. If you close your eyes, sound does suddenly seem much louder and richer and more finely detailed. Probably my favorite photograph that represents my work that I have is from Australia. And I told a group of school children uh, who I, I kind of underestimated their, their real brilliance and their sensitivity. But I, you know, at first I just thought I'd tell them a little and I'd go send them into my installation. But I, I said, you know, if you could close your eyes when you get in there, tell me if you hear the piece differently. And then they had all sorts of questions that were incredible questions, but there, someone later gave me a photograph of one of the girls in the class with her eyes closed, listening to the piece, and it seemed like she was listening with her entire, her entire being. And that picture makes me feel like I've done something for one moment that mattered. That was an excerpt from The Sound of Red Earth, a 2010 site-specific work created by Stephen Vitiello in Australia. Now how about one last sound? Glass bells that Stephen played in a MoMA sculpture garden performance. The Sound of Glass holds a universe of meanings for Camille Normand. Representing Norway at the 56th Venice Art Biennale, the American artist based in Oslo 
creates a sonic environment inspired by how sound inhabits and moves through the body. She creates an atmosphere in the pavilion that alternates between dissonance and harmony. Norwegian architect Severa Fenn designed the pavilion that represents the art of Sweden, Finland, and Norway to create a sense of shadowless Nordic light. This is the first time in recent years that Norway has presented a project alone in the space. The pavilion is situated on one of the main pathways through the park known as Giardini. The architectural design is quite the opposite of the classical temple style of the neighboring United States pavilion. The Nordic space incorporates the dark gray trunks of three live trees, its glass walls inviting a visual conversation with the surrounding topography, weather, and natural light. Normand's immersive sonic environment echoes and shatters those windows. In this unique setting, her project, titled Rapture, evokes harmony and dissonance at the same time. Rapture embodies poetry and catastrophe. Here and there beneath layered and angled elegant wall-sized window frames lie sheets of shattered glass. From the ceiling at the far end of the room, speakers shaped like great microphones project tonal sounds and breathing. Three female voices commingle with a unique musical instrument. The artist employs the installation and live performance to explore trauma and rapture. What is revealed? The complex interconnectivity of sound, myth, taboo, and science, all wrapped up in art and history. You had said you're responding to the architectural body of the pavilion itself. So let's describe what that means, mm -hmm. the architectural body. Right. Well, this pavilion is very special. and It is flanked by very large windows on two sides. And conceptually, it's always wanted to explore the relationship between the inside and outside. And of course, that's what windows do. They are theoretically invisible borders between two different environments. And so I thought to consider, in my looking at the relationship between music and the body, I wanted to consider the pavilion itself as a body and what might happen to that body if it were uh, subject to extreme states of excitation, of excitement. So I attempted to reflect that through the installation, the architectural elements, the, the oscillating and contorted and moving windows, and certainly the broken glass, and also through the soundscape. The soundscape is composed of your glass harmonica sounds right. and, and the of voices course. of women. Right, exactly. Why women? Well, a, a lot of superstition is around the relationship between music and the body. And that superstition has largely been centered on women and sexuality in relationship to music. So I thought it was very appropriate to really focus on the voices of women. And also as a sense of an empowerment, because I think also women still today, very much in a situation where we are facing these invisible borders every day. 
And I think it's quite a uh, positive to suggest this as sort of breaking through some of these invisible uh, borders through the breath of a woman or the sound of her tone. Normand describes the unusual electronic instrument at the center of this project. Well, the glass harmonica is an instrument that was invented by Benjamin Franklin in 1761. It is made out of uh, crystal bowls, 99% pure bowls made out of crystal. Uh, each bowl produces a note. If you think of a piano keyboard, for example, um, one bowl per one note. And the bowls sit on a piston and rotate with a motor. So the sound that they produce is very similar to the sound that you get when you rub your finger around a wine glass, for example, except the sound from a crystal is much more clear and much more visceral. It's very much a bodily experience. It's beautiful and also quite um, difficult to hear for a long time, I think. So I think a lot of the controversy around this instrument, I mean, when it was invented, Marie Antoinette learned how to play it, Mozart composed for it, and Franz Mesmer was hypnotizing hysterical women in his Paris salons. The world fell quickly in and out of love with the glass harmonica. If the sound was so powerful that it could uh, cure you, then perhaps it could make you sick or make you crazy or even kill you. So suddenly it was actually outlawed in several uh, European cities. And for 200 years, it ceased to exist. But it was in 1982 when a, a glassblower from Massachusetts uh, was given contracts by Silicon Valley to produce crystal tubing that would uh, be used in the production of uh, computer chips. So in the process, he had all these little bits of crystal left over. And he thought, what am I going to do with these? And he said, oh, maybe I'll try to make that weird instrument I saw in a museum when I was a boy. What was it called? The glass harmonica. So after 200 years of, of non-existence, it was the digital electronic age that uh, resurrected this instrument. Uh, the sound that the glass harmonica produces sounds very much like what we call a sine wave. And the sine wave is the most pure tone that can be produced by electronic equipment. It's a tone that has no overtones, so it's basically this idea of a pure sound. Um, I, I contest that idea. I think there are no untouched sounds because the minute that the sound touches our ear, they touch our bodies and our minds and our experiences. And so all sound, the moment that it is heard, it becomes associated with with society and with culture. It's not possible to have a pure tone. I think it's fascinating, the idea of sound censorship. There are only two notes that all of these 12 women are singing. And uh, these two notes in combination was another band tone, the tritone. And in the medieval period, it was referred to as the devil's tritone because they thought the sound was unsettling and it must be associated with the devil somehow. <laughs> last question is evoking the broader context mm -hmm. of light, sound, and Venice. How are you responding to mm -hmm. Venice itself in this project? Well, I think one very interesting connection is uh, the water of Venice. To excite the bowls of the glass harmonica, I have to immerse my fingertips in water. And so at that moment, it's, it's almost like making a direct connection to the Venetian waterways. And uh, these are very old waterways that have connected people all over the world for centuries. And so I think that's a very interesting um, moment you know, of, of connecting history to uh, the contemporary experience and certainly to the Venice Biennial.
the Hong Kong Pavilion in Venice the same year, we walk through another immersive audio experience. The political commentary of Hong Kong-based sound artist and composer Samson Young. We talk about the profiteering and political influence of songs produced to raise funds for disaster relief. And the Christmas bells that ring there The Hong Kong Pavilion sits on prime real estate, directly across from the main entrance of the Arsenale, one of two principal venues for the renowned international art exhibition. Fake news, metafiction, politics, pop music, and philanthropy are all at play in Samson Young's biennial project, Songs for Disaster Relief. His multi-part installation begins in the courtyard, In the first room, a digital collage statue, drawings, and gilded vinyl records reveal the hybrid nature of Young's research-based practice. I enter the next room by passing through a velvet curtain. Silky curtains line the walls of this glowing inner sanctum, the private world of a mysterious pop singer named Boomtown Gundane. A video of the singer's eerie performance on a frosty outdoor stage in North Dakota is projected onto the folds of fabric that cover the back wall. The last room resembles a small theater where another wall-sized video projection features the muted performance of a choir. Samson Young joins me when I venture back outside into the sunlight. Perched on the edge of the stage, we talk about the stories behind his project. The running theme throughout the exhibition is, of course, charity singles, but also the one another larger theme that for me ties everything together is the idea of failed aspiration and how to look back at the beginning of moments of aspiration, even if an aspiration has failed by today's sort of measurement and, and judgment and could we reconcile the product that we now see with the benefit of hindsight of history and then also the purity of the um, of the aspiration that started 
the thing, the process which generated this problematic product. So I didn't conceive of a show just for the biennial. We, I usually have a couple of ideas in my head that I think I would like to research into, and then when the appropriate context arises, then I dive into it. So this is one of those projects. We decided on the topic pretty early on, and I think the point of origin of my interest in charity single is when they did a remake of "Do They Know It's Christmas," and they so it's not Boy George doing it; it's like with all the new singers, and and but they try to do it in exactly the same way, you know, like the MTV, like the mega super group of stars and people, sort of like holding the headphone and then approaching the mic, doing it. All of that was very much like how they did it in the 80s, and I think for me that image was very weird, and I wanted to find out why I felt that was weird. Like maybe it's my problem, maybe it's not the song's problem, and so I started asking that question of why, like what was the source of my discomfort, and that's what started the research into this project. For listeners that might not know what that means, a charity single. Mm. It's a song that was specially recorded to raise funds for some cause, some global cause. Yeah, for charitable cause, and and I, that of course was the most popular in the 80s, really. And we've had some very iconic charity singles like "We Are the Wild." And do they know it's Christmas? These are songs that we all know, and these are also songs that I have chosen to respond to, and to let's say misread and elaborate upon. And there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. There's local variation as well. So, for example, "Bridge Over Troubled Water." For everybody else in the world, it's just bridge over troubled water. But but for people of Hong Kong, it was covered in 1991 by a group of stars to raise funds for the Eastern China flood. And so for the people of Hong Kong, bridge over troubled water is not bridge over troubled water. But this charity song, which is very iconic and representative of the time. You chose these two because they're the ones that are embedded in everyone's brains. So those, that's what you wanted to disrupt. Well, yeah, they're iconic uh, songs, and they have a lot of histories that I could already tap into, and also specifically, the lyrics for "Do They Know It's Christmas" is very weird, really, it, and so and, and problematic in all kinds of ways. The reason why I've chosen to know it's Christmas is specifically because I found this piece of news on the internet about a group of unemployed musicians from Cape Town who had produced a response to "Today Know It's Christmas," and they call that song "Yes We Do," and they use that song and the charity single to raise funds for contraception programs in the UK. And so when I read about that, I was like, "Okay, I need to find that musician," and his name was Boomtown Gandani. And so I asked my Cape Town musician friends to help me hunt down this person. Only weeks later did I find out that this actually did not happen. What I had read on red light politics for the first time was a piece of fake news that had 
uh, made the round on the internet several times and had then been reposted as real news. When I found out about that, I was like, okay, this is perfect. If you are doing the Nino's Christmas, you, you know, We Are The World is a good sort of song to match it. And, and I've chosen a very specific chorus to sing this piece as a Federation of Trade Union Chorus. That's how the piece came together. So let's describe what the experience is for those people who enter the space. There's this sculpture, this melange, assemblage kind of sculpture that represents your brain. Yeah, it's, of. <laughs> it's kind of like a collage of all, all of the different elements that I came across in the research. I have invented this fictional character called Buntang Gennady, which of course refers to this fake news, and I try to recreate the world in which he inhabits. In my imagination, he had actually recorded a response song, which you will hear in the space, and he toured with the song. So that's why on the wall you see all these make-believe platinum records, which are his platinum records that he... That's him singing on the video. And it's also him singing in the video. And these fake platinum records, they were all sort of like music tour records, but I had modified them to make like to look like platinum records. And the statue that you see in the middle of the room is basically the main image of the concert tour, but made into a 3D object. We fabricated that object with 3D printing. So it's made to look like bronze, but it sits on a mirror. And so if it was made of real bronze, it, the mirror would never support it. Yeah. So part of the fake. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. And then you enter in this gorgeous space. That's fictional characters living room like these are furnitures that I have chosen and of course some are actually very ugly but in my imagination these are all things that the fictional character would appreciate and it's actually partly about autobiographical because I, I've actually mixed into the fictional character's story a bit of my family history and so inside of that room you also see objects that belong to my personal collection there's like an award that I have won before and then like photographs and these things that, that belong to me. So this sort of like matter fiction, that sort of uh, idea I have used in other pieces before. And this is the fourth time I've collaborated with this particular singer. Every time when I make a matter fiction, I use this singer. And he sort of, he's part me and part him. The second room has whispering singers. There's a trade union chorus performing a sort of what I call muted version of we are the well. So the Federation of Trade Union in Hong Kong is a very unusual organization in that they are pro-labor. They've also had a long history and association with Beijing and the Communist Party. And I thought it would be wonderful 
to get them to sing the song. It would just set a whole world of intertextuality in motion and it would make it really complicated. I had also promised them that I'm not going to try to make fun of them. I'll put them in a good night light, I'll shoot them in a way that is dignified. And so we came together and made this piece, which I was very happy about. And you show them in a space that's very respectful of their work. Yeah. I, it, it feels different. It's yeah. good. What do you want people to take away from this experience? I think although like the different research and the logical elements of the show is very messy and almost an overload of information, I think that's okay. However, I think my feeling and sort of how I feel about these songs and these situations, the affect, effective quality of the piece is very obvious, I think. American artist Bill Fontana has a long-time relationship with sound and space. He describes his practice as composition by listening. Based in San Francisco, Fontana is known for relocating sounds to create site-specific installations around the world. We talk about how the surrounding environment informs his public art projects, from his 1981 landscape sculpture with foghorns in San Francisco, to his 2018 sonic dreamscapes in Miami Beach. When did you first become aware of sound as something that stood out for you? Well, this goes back to the uh, mid and late 60s. I grew up in Cleveland within walking distance to the Cleveland Orchestra, and I was obsessed with the idea of becoming a composer. I loved music, especially classical music, because I had ready access to that. I started in my attempts to be a composer and to write music, I would kind of go into a different state of mind. It was a kind of hyper-focus listening mode. And I found when I was in that kind of state of mind, my awareness of sound, ambient sound especially, became really interesting. And I started to think that listening was a musical activity. I got a recorder, a tape recorder, and I started to record sounds much the way a visual artist might use a camera. I came to the idea that, the, for me, the act of listening became a way of making music. And in this music conservatory in Cleveland, they thought this was kind of a strange concept. I discovered that in New York, uh, at the New School, John Cage was teaching a class called Experimental Music Composition. So I decided to leave Cleveland, go to New York, to sign up for his class and enroll in a liberal arts college that was part of the new school. A life-changing experience, even though Cage at that point was so famous, he was almost never there and he had other people teaching the class. To be taken seriously with these ideas about listening, that's when I made the decision to uh, devote my life to doing this. And, and the other influence that was really important is at the Museum of Modern Art, I saw Marcel Duchamp's sculpture called The Bride's Trip Bear. And in his notes on this, there's a famous passage where he says, musical sculpture, sounds lasting and leading, 
forming and sounding a sculpture that lasts. And when I read that, thinking about the influences I had, I started to call my work Sound Sculptures. That was 1968. What is the role of everyday sounds in your work? I think it's important when I'm inserting sounds in a public space to really uh, think about the relationship about what I'm adding to a situation and what's naturally occurring there. Try to find a balance, I guess. Why don't you tell us about the first public art sound piece that you did in the U.S. in 1981 in San Francisco, where you live today? I I think that that is one where sound is really describing place and space. This is called Landscape Sculpture with Foghorns. When I first moved to San Francisco, I became fascinated by how the foghorns from the Golden Gate Bridge could travel long distances around the bay. And I was interested in the idea of hearing that sound from different distances and perspectives at the same time. I selected and installed eight different locations around San Francisco Bay and installed live microphones that were transmitting to a building on San Francisco Bay at a cultural center called Fort Mason. Live sounds from eight different points in San Francisco Bay were transmitting to eight loudspeakers on the eastern wall of Pier 2 at Fort Mason. So you you would hear this real-time living sound map of San Francisco Bay. When the San Francisco Art Institute took over that building and made their graduate studios there, they asked me to think about reinstalling that piece. And it's, it's living there rather quietly as a kind of sonic meditation. Another project that you've done that represents that idea of capturing and preserving history and memory and projecting it into space is the project you did in Berlin. Right. That was 1984. The site of that work was called the Anhalter Bahnhof, which in pre-war Berlin was one of the busiest train stations. During the Second World War, it was virtually destroyed by bombing. And in 1984, Berlin was a divided city, and the Anhalter Bahnhof was an abandoned ruin. And I was fascinated by this space, because when you think of a train station like that, and all the sound and all the life and all the energy that happens there, the idea that it was become deserted and, and forgotten, activating some of that, that memory seems really interesting. But the idea of trying to recreate what it sounded like in pre-war Berlin seemed really kind of a depressing idea. And what seemed more interesting was to find the busiest contemporary German train station and to move it acoustically and rebuild it acoustically. 
as a sound sculpture, I buried eight loudspeakers in the empty field that used to be the station hall of the Anhalter Bahnhof. And I went traveling through Germany looking for the right train station to bring to Berlin. I decided on the main train station of Cologne, which was uh, at that time the busiest train station in Germany. And so I had this big broadcasting company in Cologne helping me set up a system of microphones in the Cologne station so that I could make this uh, large-scale, kind of real-time sound rendering of that station that I could send to Berlin. Well, let's fast forward to 2018 when you created a special project for Miami Beach through a commission with Art and Public Places. You interact with real space in Soundscape Park, which is a public park with a 72-speaker system surround sound. Let's talk about the sounds you chose to record. Well, I decided to uh, record the Mockingbirds for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's a state bird of Florida. And mockingbirds are unique in that their repertoire of songs is based a lot on what they hear. Mockingbirds are listeners. They mimic other bird songs. They mimic other mockingbirds. They mimic human sounds. So I started experimenting with mixing these different pitched and time-stretched versions of the mockingbirds so that... In a way, the mockingbird was really making music with itself. Think of the evolution of a bird song, and that bird songs uh, are the result of thousands and millions of years of evolution. I wanted to kind of con somehow convey that sense of timelessness. In 2017, we meet Colombian composer and sound artist Alba Triana in her Miami studio. She shows us a range of her experiments, from inaudible sound and light installations to interactive electronic music compositions and vibrational environments. At her temporary studio space in the village of El Portal, 10 miles north of downtown Miami. She's working on a set of unique sound installations for a special exhibition to celebrate the 125th anniversary of the Cologne Theater in Bogota, Colombia. We're here to explore three of the projects that will travel to South America. But first, I'm eager to learn what drives Alba Triana's work. What is the genesis of her creative practice? This is important and complicated. <laughs> I'm a composer. I started studying music since I was very little. I went to the conservatory and then I studied music composition. And I started my career as a composer, writing mostly electronic music and music for symphonic instruments, writing very avant-garde music and experimental music. 
I've gradually started integrating different types of art. And during the last 10 years, I've done mostly installation work in which I incorporate different forms of sound. And the pieces have a very strong visual component and they also incorporate a dialogue with the space. What drew you to installation as the form of your work? I'm a very experimental person and I wanted to explore perceiving and experience music. And I believe that it's very difficult to work from a disciplinary perspective, in my case music, and being able to talk through the work about the world. So I feel that I need to cross the boundaries of other artistic disciplines, even scientific and philosophical disciplines. I know from experience and speaking with you that technology plays a role in your work and quite significant in the installations that are around us in this room and that will be shown in Bogota. Yes, technology plays a very important role, but even though it does, I never depart when I develop a work from a technological motivation. I'm the type of artist who departs from an artistic question and uses the tools, the most modern tools, to explore that question that motivates. I basically use the instruments of my time, you know, in the time of Mozart, the pianoforte was developed, so he used the pianoforte. In my time, there are computers, we can do coding, we can write the software for our pieces. So I basically use whatever technological tool is available to develop the idea. For me, art is not only a form of expression, but it's also a form of knowledge. As an artist, I have a lot of questions about life, reality. I have realized that I can use my work to understand reality. With my work, I'm trying to penetrate and explore and get to know intangible aspects of nature. For example, I work a lot with waves, things that we cannot perceive. You're talking about waves, you're speaking of sound waves. Sound and light. When I work with waves, I don't care so much if they are sound waves or light waves. You know, sound waves are mechanical waves and light waves are electromagnetic waves. I just work with waves and I make them interact and there are beautiful phenomena and very interesting things that happen. Though it might seem counterintuitive, we begin with an inaudible sound experiment. Music on a bound string is a project that questions whether or not the act of listening is indispensable to the musical experience. Alpatriana has developed the project in a series of modular variations. She considers each module an individual sculpture. Each sculpture consists of two vertical bars, spaced around 3 feet or 130 centimeters apart. The artist ties a flexible string between the two bars and wires each string to a speaker. Then she sets the string's frequency with a tuning peg. When she turns on the speaker, it excites the string. The sound becomes visible as the vibration animates the string in an undulating wave. All that's perceptible to the ear is a low hum. The sound wave becomes like a canvas where we get to see the light. 
For the exhibition in Bogota, the artist is designing a complex version of music on a bound string, composed of five modules that stand at gradually increasing heights, to display in a darkened corridor at the Colón Theater. Instead of having one instrument, I'm having an ensemble, a quintet, and I'm treating each structure as a musician in an ensemble. It means that as the piece develops, it's a light piece, the different sculptures interact among them. Sometimes all of them get together, sometimes some of them get together, sometimes they all be, are doing something different. While the artist intends for music on a bound string to be seen, not heard, her multifaceted project, Microcosmos, offers an immersive vibrational experience. It's a symbol that is excited with energy. It vibrates, and then with those vibrations, I make an eight-minute composition. And that composition is a meditative experience. The installation has a golden orb to it that looks like the sun is a projection of light onto the symbol. And the symbol itself, the sound, is gorgeous. Yes, basically that piece is about the fact that everything in nature vibrates, but we cannot perceive that. We get to hear those vibrations that are intrinsic for the symbol. And also we get to see them. For example, at the beginning of the piece, one can see a wave on the contour of the symbol. There are two video components as well, so people can observe at a different speed the experience. Exactly. Those videos are takes of the full piece in slow motion. You get to see all that detail. The third project that Alba Triana introduces to me is inspired by the gamelan, a traditional ensemble music from Indonesia, made up predominantly of percussive instruments. Alba's electronic gamelan is an interactive musical instrument with a real-time processing interface and nine speakers. The instrument is a low-lying luminous glass table that resembles an electronic keyboard. Six bands of white light span the rectangular surface. Visitors kneel to play the instrument without touching it, simply by hovering one hand over a small circle of white light at the far right edge of the table. As their hands cast shadows over the bands of light, they change the sound quality of a musical composition that Alba Triana composed. What is interesting about this recording is that I never play versions that I have made. This is somebody else, someone of the public, transforming my musical piece. How do you hope that others experience your work and how it might change their perception of sound and light? All these pieces have many layers of information. For me, art is an expression of the horizon. It's an expression of what is possible. I think that artists, we are like entrepreneurs. We try things. We want to discover the future, possibly new forms of art. For me, what is important is about 
expanding the field. I work in a very scientific way, in a very philosophical way, but also in a very intuitive way. And when I present my pieces, I hope to touch someone, to touch someone, to make the person feel different, to have this atmosphere, these sensations. This is the Fresh Art Podcast. I'm Kathy Bird. The artists we introduce today show us how sonic art can transform our experience of the world. Sound can convey political commentary. Music can alter our perception of architectural space. Compositions created from field recordings can connect us to the nature and history of place. These modes of engagement with sound expose us to a vital genre of contemporary art. Visit our website to learn more and hear other episodes featuring sound art. Please take a few minutes to review Fresh Art on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram at FreshArtINTL. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, Locust Projects, and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, the International Association of Curators of Contemporary Art, and listeners like you make this project possible. Visit our website to receive the latest news and give a donation in any amount to support our stories. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.